This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start out reading from JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And the first article, A Menorah in the Window, the Biden Presidency's First Hanukkah is All About Visible Diversity, by Ron Campeas, Washington. Douglas Emhoff was ubiquitous this Hanukkah week, which makes sense. He is the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president, and was consequently very in demand among Jews this first holiday season of the Biden presidency. But Emhoff's happy Jewishness, a robust embrace of his tradition and faith that has become his hallmark, was also emblematic of the message that the Biden administration hoped to convey through the Jewish holiday. American diversity should be made visible. At a White House candlelighting ceremony Wednesday night in the East Room in front of 150 people, Emhoff and his wife Kamala Harris talked about displaying a menorah in the window of one's house, which, as a means of expressing pride in one's Jewishness, is seen as a mitzvah in Judaism. For the couple, the move doubles as a metaphor for the diversity that Biden administration officials say was sorely lacking during the presidency of Donald Trump. A few weeks ago, I visited my childhood home in Old Bridge, New Jersey, Emhoff said, and I actually got to peer into the house and I saw the windowsill where our family menorah sat. To think that today I'm here before you as the first Jewish spouse of an American president or vice president celebrating Hanukkah, it's not lost on me that I stand before you all on behalf of all the Jewish families and communities out there across the country. Harris speaking immediately after Emhoff recalled how a Montana town reacted in 1993 after a brick was thrown through the window of a home displaying a menorah. When a brick was thrown through the window of a Jewish home in Billings, Montana, the town came together. Thousands put menorahs in their windows in a stand against hate, she said. In their social media Hanukkah message, Harris and Emhoff made a point of posing next to the window of the vice presidential residence as they lit their menorah. President Joe Biden, when he spoke, drew blunt comparisons between his policies and those of his predecessor. Introducing his Jewish cabinet members, he asked Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, to stand up. He is practicing the Jewish tradition of restoring justice to the Justice Department, he said, alluding to complaints by Democrats that Trump made the ostensibly independent department a vassal for his authoritarian tendencies. Biden, who in part launched his 2019 campaign because he said he was appalled that Trump had equivocated in condemning the deadly 2017 neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville, Virginia, also implicitly chided Republicans for holding up the nomination of Deborah Lipstadt, the Holocaust historian, to become the State Department's anti-Semitism monitor. We have to stand against the resurgence of this tide of anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance and hate here at home and around the world, Biden said. In that effort, there is nobody more qualified than Professor Deborah Lipstadt to be our special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. First Lady Jill Biden cast the occasion as a transition out of a period of darkness referring to the emergence of, uh, from the isolation of the coronavirus pandemic and framing as heroes two communities that have been vilified by portions of the right, medical personnel and teachers. 
Hanukkah is a story of finding the courage to stand up for what's right, even when the odds are against us, of faith that finds the foundations of our future and the wreckage of our past, and a hope that spreads from the heart like the flame of the shamash, she said. One of the two rabbis present was Aaron Galat, an infectious disease doctor and a rabbi. Emergence from the pandemic was another theme this Hanukkah week. On the first night of Hanukkah, American Friends of Lubavitch presided over a larger turnout than last year for the lighting of the National Menorah on the Ellipse in front of the White House. Emov spoke this year. Rabbi Levi Shemtov, the executive vice president of the American Friends of Lubavitch, said turnout increased as much as sixfold from 500 socially distanced seats last year to a turnout of 2,500 to 3,000 this year. The Congressional Hanukkah Party held Tuesday night was virtual over Zoom, but for the first time Shem Tov organized an outdoor menorah lighting on Capitol Hill. Both congressional events had a rare bipartisan flavor. They were organized by Representatives Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Florida Democrat, and Lee Zeldin, a New York Republican who was running for governor there. Both figures are hard-hitting partisans, but both were effusive in their praise for one another. Change was also on display at the Israeli Embassy's Hanukkah party on Monday night, the inaugural event for the new ambassador, Michael Herzog. Herzog's predecessor, Ron Dermer, and Dermer's boss, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, were close to Republicans to the point of alienating many Democrats and liberal Jewish organizations. Attendance by Democrats and liberals was increasingly rare at the Israeli embassy events during the Trump years. This year, two top Jewish Democrats in the Senate, Chuck Schumer of New York, the majority leader, and Ben Cardin of Maryland, a leader in human rights advocacy, lit the candles, and representatives of liberal Jewish organizations were in attendance. Herzl, who is the is uh, who is uh, Herzog rather, who is the Israeli president's brother and a veteran of national security, in his remarks before the lighting, picked up on one of the Biden administration's favorite themes diversity, and spun it into a major theme of the new Israeli government, reaching out to Democrats and Republicans alike. Here with us are many friends from a diverse array of backgrounds, histories, entities, and perspectives, he said. It is with intention and purpose that I embrace that diversity because it is part of our strength. Our doors and hearts are open to each and all of you. Next from JTA. Kamala Harris and Douglas Emhoff wanted an appropriate menorah. They turned to the Mench of Malden Hills, uh, Malden Mills, rather, by Ron Campeas, Washington. The Biden administration is all about getting folks to work together to climb out of a COVID-stricken economy. That might explain why the first menorah lit by a Jewish spouse to a vice president came from the home of a businessman revered for paying employees for months while he built rebuild a factory destroyed in a fire. Yair Rosenberg, who writes about Jewish issues at The Atlantic, tracked down the origins of the menorah in a photo that Douglas Emhoff, the Jewish husband of Vice President Kamala Harris, posted on social media the first night of Hanukkah. Staffers for the second couple were considering which menorah to use. There's always a story behind the candelabras featured at White House Hanukkah lightings. One came across the obituary of Aaron Feuerstein, who died on November 4th at age 95. 
In December 1995, the company's red brick textile factory complex caught on fire, causing one of the largest blazes in Massachusetts history. Work for the factory's 1,400 employees stopped, but Feuerstein kept paying them. At the time, the Boston Globe quoted Feuerstein as saying, I'm not throwing 3,000 people out of work two weeks before Christmas. Feuerstein also explained after the fire that he was guided by Jewish tradition. When all is mor moral chaos, this is the time for you to be a mensch, a humane person, he said. Feuerstein's mensch status was further cemented by the second couple's decision to honor him by lighting his menorah this year. Noticing the Emoth post was Feuerstein's granddaughter, Marika Schosch Feuerstein, which should come as no surprise. She had painted the menorah for her granddad. My grandfather is still shining bright, which means his values and chesed live on, she said on Facebook, using a term for loving kindness. Next from JTA is the Biden-Bennett honeymoon over. Here are six U.S.-Israeli issues that are raising tensions. By Ron Compeyes, Washington. Ron's a busy guy. Behind closed doors is a phrase that crops up a lot in conversation with senior U.S. and Israeli officials these days. That's the place both sides want to settle disagreements. So far, that strategy has worked to repair the structure of the diplomatic relationship between U.S. Democrats and the Israeli government, frayed by years of open and sometimes heated contentiousness. Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu in, particularly, in particular repeatedly clashed in public. But despite their ideological differences on paper, President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett have projected a convivial and united front. Biden, I think it's visceral with him given his historic commitment to Israel and also not wanting a repeat of the Obama years, said David Makovsky, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a think tank with ties to both the U.S. and Israeli governments. And with Bennett and Lapid, they don't want to repeat the Netanyahu years. Still, an array of issues have begun to swirl over the past several months that threaten the current calm. Bennett has allowed for the construction of thousands of new settler homes. Biden is pushing to reopen the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, formerly the principal venue for U.S.-Palestinian relations. Last month, the United States sanctioned two Israeli spyware companies. Then there is the ongoing strife over Iran's nuclear program, a point of contention that those who analyze the U.S.-Israel friendship uh, relationship say could eventually blow the doors wide open. The Iran issue is where the two parties don't control the developments, Makovsky said, and that's where Israel is concerned. Here are the issues that could drive a wedge between the two communities. Iran. This week's talks, uh, uh, this week talks on what conditions the United States wants to see before re-entering the Iran deal, known formally as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, resume in Vienna. The JCPOA swaps sanctions relief for Iran rolling back its nuclear program. Former President Donald Trump, with Netanyahu's encouragement, exited the deal in 2018 reimposing suspended sanctions and adding hundreds of new ones. Iran retaliated, suspending some of its compliance with the deal. Biden campaigned on re-entering the deal brokered in 2015, when he was vice president, seeing it as the best means of stopping a nuclear weapon. 
Bennett and Lapid are skeptical, but have said they are willing to wait and see if Biden negotiates better terms with Iran. Israeli officials have said they believe Iran is weeks away from nuclear weapons capability. The country is enriching uranium up to 60% purity, perilously, uh, perilously close to the 90% needed for weaponization. This week, Axios reported, Israel warned the United States that Iran is on the verge of 90% enrichment. Makovsky said what Iran does this week could set off any number of calculations from the United States and Israel that could lead to open confrontation between the allies. I think the U.S.-Israel relationship will be tested in terms of how each side responds to this uncertainty, Makovsky said. Settlements. The call that Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz took October 26th was the first of its kind in almost five years. There was a U.S. Secretary of State on the line livid about the announcement that week that Israel had green-lighted more than 3,000 new units in the West Bank. Some were located in E1, the corridor that separates the Ma'ale Adumim settlement from Jerusalem, and which Palestinians say is critical to the existence of a viable Palestinian state, the Biden administration's favorite outcome to the decades-long conflict. An anonymous Israeli aide described the call by saying the U.S. gave us a yellow card, Axios reported. In soccer, a yellow card is a strong warning over conduct handled from, handed from a referee to a player. Two yellow cards in one game equals an ejection. In other words, Blinken's dressing down was just a warning, not a signal of a new status quo in U.S.-Israel relations. Palestinian NGOs Last month, Gantz designated six leading Palestinian human rights organizations operating in the West Bank as terrorist groups. The designation would allow Israel's government to shut the groups down, although it's not yet clear if the government has taken those steps. Gantz argued that the NGOs are affiliated with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, designated by the State Department as a terrorist group. But the international condemnation of the move was swift. The Biden administration also said it was caught off guard by the designation. Anonymous Israeli officials countered that the United States was forewarned and that intelligence about the groups had been shared. European officials have said the intelligence they have seen is not persuasive. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, has signaled that the Biden administration remains less than convinced by whatever intelligence Israel was proffering. She has made a point of expressing support for Palestinian NGOs. This week, I had the chance to meet with civil society leaders in Ramallah, Thomas Greenfield said on Twitter on November 20th after a visit to Israel and the West Bank. I was inspired by their work to advance democracy, human rights, and economic opportunity for the Palestinian people. We support Palestinian NGOs' role monitoring human rights abuses wherever they occur. On Tuesday, Thomas Greenfield told the United Nations Security Council that settler attacks created a serious security situation for Palestinians and said she had raised it with Israeli officials. The National quoted her as saying she had heard of Israeli settlers attacking Palestinians, ransacking homes, and destroying property in the West Bank, and that this is an issue that I discussed extensively with Israeli counterparts the Jerusalem Consulate. 
Biden campaigned on reopening the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, which was the site of U.S.-Palestinian relations until Trump closed it in 2019. Both Bennett and Lapid, Israel's more centrist foreign minister, who is slated to rotate into the prime minister role in 2023, have said that can't happen. The Biden administration says it is determined to make good on the pledge, which the president sees as key to reviving Israeli-Palestinian peace talks toward a two-state outcome. Lapid has sought to persuade his counterpart Antony Blinken that forcing the issue could endanger the Bennett-Lapid government. That's because there's no way the consulate could reopen without explicit Israeli approval, and giving that approval would put the Bennett government in the position of acknowledging a Palestinian claim to the city, the third rail in Israeli politics. The old consulate predated Israel's existence, which meant that until Trump closed it, there was no need to seek Israel's approval for its ongoing function. That's no longer the case, according to Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace think tank, who from 1992 to 1994 was a U.S. diplomat at the consulate. A diplomatic mission operates as literally an island of foreign sovereignty within the territory of the host country staffed by foreign diplomats who, for the most part, enjoy immunity from the jurisdiction of the host government. Friedman wrote last month in her weekly roundup of congressional action related to the Middle East. No nation can simply rent, buy a property in a foreign country and declare it unilaterally under their own country's sovereignty. The host country must consent to giving up its sovereignty to a foreign nation. Israeli officials say that they are seeking a way out that would save face for both sides, perhaps by opening a consulate in an area of the West Bank not seen as Jerusalem. Spyware the Biden administration this month sanctioned two Israeli spyware companies, NSO Group and Kandira, saying that repressive governments are using the tools to threaten the rules-based international order. Apple sued NSO for selling its cell phone hacking spyware to governments that used it to spy on activists and journalists. Israel's defense ministry must approve exports of Israeli security technology and Biden officials have made clear they want answers. Nevertheless, the Biden administration says no actions against Israel's government are forthcoming. We look forward to further discussions with the government of Israel about ensuring that these companies' products are not used to target human rights defenders, journalists, and others who shouldn't be targeted, said Ned Price, a State Department spokesman. China. One issue that has simmered over from the Trump to the Biden administrations, Israel's increasing trade with China. Like Trump, Biden is wary of what he sees as China's increased belligerency and is set on confronting the country. As of now, he is considering a diplomatic boycott of next year's Olympics in Beijing. Both the Biden and Trump administrations made it clear to Israel that it was expected as an ally to roll back its ties with China, especially in areas of infrastructure that risk exposing U.S. technology. But Israel has yet to alter its course. In October, Israel refused to sign a U.N. statement condemning China's treatment of the Uyghurs, a Muslim minority group in China that has been forced into re-education camps, which some have likened to concentration camps. 
China was perhaps the most sensitive issue at a meeting between Lapid and Blinken in October. The importance of China to Israel's economy is very substantial, and we have to find a way to discuss this subject in a way that does not harm Israel's interests, an official close to Lapid said at the time. Next from JTA, Gabrielle Giffords just celebrated her bat mitzvah at age 51 by Shira Hanau. After former House Representative Gabrielle Giffords was shot in the head outside a supermarket in Tucson in 2011, it wasn't clear if she'd survive, let alone be able to speak. Giffords' injuries, which led her to resign from office, left her with partial paralysis and aphasia, which makes it difficult for her to speak. Well, last Saturday, Giffords chanted her Torah portions, becoming a bat mitzvah at Temple Havarim in Tucson, at the age of 51, the forward reported. The milestone was the culmination of 20 years of study with Rabbi Stephanie Aaron, as well as two close friends. Aaron delivered a speech that Giffords wrote, and Giffords performed the song Amazing Grace on the French horn. My Torah portion is from Genesis, from the story of Joseph, Giffords told the forward in an email. If you know Vayeshev, you know it begins, and he lived. Any story that begins and he lived is good with me. I lived. Everything afterwards is a gift. Giffords and Aaron first began studying together when Giffords was a member of the Arizona legislature in the early 1900s. Uh, 1900s. Early 2000s. Vaysmere. While the two discussed Giffords becoming a bat mitzvah multiple times, it wasn't until two years ago when Giffords recruited two friends to study with her that they began preparing for the moment in earnest. The four women studied the weekly Torah portion together before beginning to study Giffords portion, which Giffords chanted along with Aaron. I am a person who is always looking for ways to grow, to keep moving and find new paths, Gifford, uh, Giffords wrote to the foreword. I am proud and honored to become a bat mitzvah as an adult. It is never too late to explore faith, to learn the stories of the past, and reflect on their meaning today. Gifford's grandfather changed his surname from Hornstein in the 1940s to avoid anti-Semitism. She was raised by a Jewish father and Christian scientist mother in Tucson, but has practiced only Judaism since the early 2000s. Giffords represented Arizona's 8th District in Congress from 2007 to 2012. Next from JTA, Florida Jewish Federation says its anti-hate ad was rejected by Facebook algorithm by Asaf Shalev. Just ahead of Hanukkah, the Jewish Federation of Broward County in Florida tried to purchase an ad on Facebook, a simple post calling attention to the problem of anti-Semitism, as a part of a new nationwide campaign called Shine a Light. But Facebook's automated system rejected the ad without explanation, leading Federation officials to suspect the post was accidentally ensnared by a filter designed to block hate speech. Unfortunately, Facebook inexplicably rejected our ads, presumably because they contained the words hate and anti-Semitism, wrote the Federation's board chair, Alan Cohn, and interim president and CEO Mark Friedman in a letter to the company on Tuesday. This, we believe, is an unintended but calamitous consequence of your effort to curb hate speech. 
If they are right, it wouldn't be the first time such a thing has happened. From the moment Facebook banned Holocaust denial on its platforms last October, Jewish museums and other institutions doing education and outreach on anti-Semitism have reported trouble getting content published. It's a real problem for us, an official at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum told JTA in June. As algorithms governing what can be published appear to get tripped up, human reviewers are supposed to step in and distinguish hate from efforts to combat it. But many have found that getting their posts reviewed by a person and then approved can take months if it happens at all. In one notable recent instance, Chabad rabbis across the country reported that their efforts to promote a four-part course about anti-Semitism on Facebook were blocked, although it was not clear whether the algorithm applied to prevent hate was to blame. The letter from the Broward County Federation addressed to Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg said efforts to restrict hate speech are appropriate, but that Facebook's current system does as much harm as it does good. Federation asked that Facebook let its ad run and called on the company to amplify voices that combat hate. Fox host Lara Logan compares Fauci to Nazi Dr. Mengele, and Auschwitz Museum calls it shameful, by Ron Compeas. Fox Nation host Lara Logan compared Anthony Fauci, the top official handling the U.S. coronavirus response, to Joseph Mengele the Nazi doctor who conducted experiments on inmates at the Auschwitz death camp. Logan was speaking on Fox News primetime on Monday about the prospect of new restrictive measures in the wake of the international concern over a new coronavirus variant dubbed Omicron. This is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them, Logan said of Fauci, President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor who has become a lightning rod for conservative ire because he has favored restrictions to contain the virus. He represents Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps, and I am talking about people all across the world are saying this. The Auschwitz Memorial Museum called the comparison shameful in a statement Tuesday. Exploiting the tragedy of people who became victims of criminal pseudo-medical experiments in Auschwitz in a debate about vaccines pandemic and people who fight for saving human lives is shameful, the museum's Twitter account wrote. It is disrespectful to victims and a sad symptom of moral and intellectual decline. In the wake of Omicron's development, Omicron's development Biden has restricted travel from some South, uh, southern African nations where it appears to be prevalent. But otherwise, Fauci has said it is too early to tell if the variant will trigger trigger renewed restrictions. National Jewish groups have repeatedly rebuked conservative figures, including frequently Republican lawmakers who have likened coronavirus protections to the Nazi era. Logan was a correspondent for CBS News between 2002 and 2018. She joined the Fox Nation streaming service, a spinoff of Fox News, in 2019. Next from JTA, Israel's health minister wants to make it easier for women to get abortions, by Shira Hanau. As the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Washington on the most significant abortion case to reach the court in decades, Israel's health minister laid out his plans to simplify what he calls Israel's chauvinistic abortion process on Wednesday. It should be a given 
The rights to a woman's body are the woman's alone, Nitzan Horowitz told the Israeli news site Ynet. Any decision or medical procedure, such as the choice of whether to perform an abortion, must be in the hands of the woman. We have no moral right to decide for her how to deal with an unwanted pregnancy. Horowitz, head of the left-wing Meretz Party, wants to allow women to terminate a pregnancy within its first 12 weeks without approval by committee, which is currently a requirement for all abortions in Israel. While abortions are legal in a number of cases in Israel, women seeking an abortion have to present their reasons for ending the pregnancy before a committee of three people. Committees approve abortions for women under the age of 18 or over the age of 40. In cases where birth defects are expected, when the pregnancy is the result of rape or incest, when the woman is unmarried, or when the pregnancy may endanger the woman's life or mental or physical health. The health ministry plans to update the application form for abortions, which has not been changed since 1977, and study which hospitals receive the most applications in order to address the problem of lengthy wait times that women face at some hospitals. It also plans to transfer responsibility for some abortions, particularly drug-induced procedures performed in the first term, to health clinics rather than hospitals. Changes to the committee requirements, which are subject to Knesset approval, will likely take longer and face opposition from conservative parties in the governing coalition. Michal Rosen and Gabby Lasky, two other Meretz lawmakers in Parliament, plan to present a bill that would allow women to abort without approval of a committee until the 12th week of pregnancy. After the 12th week, women would still be required to approach the committee, which would then act in an advisory role rather than approving or disapproving. Next from JTA, the Spinoza scholar who was banned from Amsterdam synagogue is now invited to visit it by Knan Lipschitz, Amsterdam. An organization responsible for Amsterdam's historic Portuguese synagogue has apologized to a scholar whom a resident rabbi last week declared persona non grata due to a centuries-old edict against the philosopher Baruch Spinoza. We regret that a perfectly normal request to visit the premises of the Portuguese synagogue has led to an international uproar. Michael Minso and Emil Schreiber wrote on Tuesday to the scholar Yitzhak Malamed, a professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University. Malamed sought access to the synagogue to make a documentary about Spinoza, whom the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam excommunicated in 1656 for writings that it deemed heretic. Rabbi Joseph Serfati last week rejected Malamed's request in a letter that the scholar posted on Facebook. The ban remains in force and cannot be rescinded. You have devoted your life to the study of Spinoza's banned works and the development of his ideas, Serfati wrote. I therefore deny your request and declare you persona non grata in the Portuguese synagogue complex. But Serfati acted without approval from the board of the Jewish Culture Quarter, a city-funded institution that runs the Jewish Museum of Amsterdam and the non-religious components of the synagogue, according to Minso 
and Shriver, the head of the board of directors of the synagogue and the head of the Jewish Cultural Quarter, respectively. Serfati's decision has been overturned, they wrote, and Malamud is welcome to visit the synagogue and its library. We do hope that you will decide to pursue your plans to come to Amsterdam to do your work as requested, Minso and Shriver wrote in the letter. We are looking forward to welcoming you. Malamud posted to Facebook Thursday after previously disclosing that he had received an apology from Minso and Shriver, but that he had been instructed not to publicize it. He also said he had received a letter with fresh maledictions from Serfati. Serfati has uh, apologized in a statement for the way in which the letter was sent to Malamud, but stands behind its content according to the Dutch-Jewish news site, Jonet. Serfati did not reply to repeated requests for comments this week from JTA. And next from JTA, Larry David has never been more Jewish than in this season's Curb by Andrew Silo Carroll. Curb You Enthusiasm has always been a Jewy show, but this season it is downright Jewish. On the HBO sitcom now in its 11th season, Larry David has never been shy about surfacing and lampooning Judaism and Jewishness. He has contemplated the dilemmas of Holocaust survival, waded into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by, via a local chicken restaurant, and gotten stra stranded on a ski lift with an Orthodox Jew on Shabbat. This season, it's not just the occasional matzah ball joke or the Yiddish lesson he gave John Hamm in the season premiere. David is plunging into questions of Jewish pride and belief, and if he isn't exactly Abraham Joshua Heschel, he could provide a Jewish educator with a semester of lively classroom debate. In the latest episode, for example, a Jew for Jesus joins the cast of the show that Larry's character is developing for Hulu. Although neither Larry nor his Jewish friends are remotely religious, they seem genuinely upset by the actor's apostasy, and Larry gives him a rather sober warning that he shouldn't proselytize on set. A week earlier, a member of his golf club, played by Rob Morrow, asks Larry to pray for his ailing father. Larry declines, saying prayer is useless. He also wonders why God would need or heed the prayer of a random atheist like himself instead of the distressed son who wants his father to live. For anyone who has gone to Hebrew school, it's a familiar challenge, usually aired by the wiseacre in the back row who the teacher suspects is perhaps the most engaged student in the classroom. And it is not just the atheists posing the question. Why pray? The Israeli philosopher Yeshayu Leibowitz, a devout Orthodox Jew, believed that worship of God must be totally devoid of instrumental considerations. In addition to a Jewish, Jewish funeral, the episode has a bonus theological theme, Midah Keneged Midah, or as Morrow's character puts it, what goes around comes around. Morrow warns Larry that his actions will have consequences, which actually gives Larry pause. If anything, the entire Curb Enterprise is an exercise in Jewish karma. Larry is constantly being punished in ways large and small for his actions, inactions, meddling, and slights. As the old theater expression has it, if Larry opens a donut shop to drive a rival out of business in Act 1, his own shop will burn to the ground in Act 3. A prior episode was even more self-consciously Jewish. Larry attends high holiday services only because he lost a golf bet to the rabbi, and he literally bumps into a Klansman coming out of a coffee shop. 
The latter sets off a string of plot twists as he and the KKK guy trade a series of favors and obligations that will have disastrous consequences for both. Larry's salvation comes at the end when he blares a shofar from his balcony, literally raising the alarm on anti-Semitism and awaking his neighbors to the threat of white supremacy. The episode suggests the failure of good intentions. Larry spills coffee on the Klansman's robe and offers to have it dry cleaned. Good liberal Jew that he is, Larry appears genuine in his belief that empathy is a better response to hate than confrontation, and that if he turns the other cheek, it might lower the temperature in a post-Trump America. Of course, it doesn't work out that way, and the last word goes to his friend Susie Green, who performs a pointed act of Jewish sabotage that gets the Klansman pummeled by his fellow racists. Give David credit for embedding within a preposterous half-hour of television a debate about vengeance and resistance that enraged the followers of Jews as different as Jesus and Jabotinsky. Make no mistake, the Larry David character is sacrilegious and heretical, and Curb is no friend of the religious mindset. But to dismiss him as self-hating is to miss out on the unmistakably Jewish conversation at the heart of the show. David's character is a deeply principled person. Most of the nonsense he gets himself into is a result of his enforcing unspoken social rules that others appear to be flouting, whether it is taking too many samples at the ice cream counter or dominating the conversation poorly at the dinner table. Larry is rude and inconsiderate, but he is seldom wrong. He is what Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik might have called the halachic man, an actualizer of the ideals of justice and righteousness even when the rest of the world resents it. If you think I am overdoing it, remember that there is an actual discussion in Talmud about the right and wrong way of putting on a pair of shoes. And just as in the Talmud, there are no easy answers in David's moral universe. If a friend lends you his favorite one-of-a-kind shirt and you ruin it, what are your obligations to him? See the Talmud, Baba Metzian 96b. If a thief breaks into your house and then drowns in your swimming pool, wasn't protected by the required fence, who is owed damages and how much? See Ibn Ezra on Exodus 22, 1-2. In last week's episode, Larry even touched on, consciously or not, a classic debate in the Talmud. If you and a friend are stranded in the desert, and your canteen has only enough water for one of you to survive, must you share it or save your own life? Yes, Larry was talking about sharing a phone charger, but if the sages had cell phones, what do you think they'd be talking about? Andrew Salo Carroll is the editor-in-chief of the, Jewish, uh, the New York Jewish Week and senior editor of JTA. And next from JTA, Mel Brooks, newly minted memoirist, praises Cell Ray Soda and insists he's more New York humor than Jewish by Andrew Lappin. At 95, Mel Brooks is finally ready to speak his truth. A deli without Selray is no deli at all. The comedy icon and EGOT winner, whose movies, musicals, and stage acts defined the last century of American Jewish humor, is celebrating the release of his new memoir, All About Me, My Remarkable Life in Show Business, and his upcoming Hulu production of History of the World, Part 2. In an interview with the New Yorker, Brooks also revealed his favorite deli sandwich. 
a white meat turkey sandwich with Thousand Island dressing and coleslaw, and one slice of corned beef just for the accent with a little bit of mustard, with the important caveat that the Dr. Brown celery-flavored soda should be part of the meal. If there's a deli that's worth its salt, it's going to have Dr. Brown's celery tonic, Brooks told interviewer Michael Schulman. The cult favorite soft drink is a staple of Jewish delis in New York, Los Angeles, and Florida. Of course, the man behind Springtime for Hitler had many other Jewish observations at the ready, including tributes to his departed collaborators Carl Reiner, Sid Caesar, and Gene Wilder. But Brooks also defends a point he makes in his memoir that his humor isn't Jewish per se, but rather New York. Jewish comedy was softer and sweeter. New York comedy was tougher and more explosive, Brooks tells The New Yorker. There's some cruelty that you find in New York humor that you wouldn't find in Yiddish humor. In New York, you make fun of somebody who walks funny. You'd never find that in Shalom Aleichem. You'd feel pity. Incredibly, Brooks had never written a memoir before, says his son. He says his son, novelist Max Brooks, encouraged him to tackle the project during the COVID-19 pandemic, but he has certainly told his share of life stories over the past decade, whether in documentaries, live stand-up at the Geffen Theater, or in a traveling stage show accompanying screenings of his most beloved films. With no signs of slowing down, Brooks may well keep slurping Cell Ray and belting high anxiety for another century. Next, we're going to go over to the Times of Israel for an analysis piece by Judah Ari Gross. War, what Israel talks about when it talks about striking Iran's nuclear program. Nearly one year ago, IDF chief Aviv Kohavi stood on stage at an Institute for National Security Studies uh, conference in Tel Aviv and announced that he had ordered the military to begin preparing renewed plans for a strike on Iran's nuclear program. Iran can decide that it wants to advance to a bomb, either covertly or in a provocative way. In light of this basic analysis, I have ordered the IDF to prepare a number of operational plans in addition to the existing ones. We are studying these plans and we will develop them over the next year, Kohavi said. He added, the government will of course be the one to decide if they should be used, but these plans must be on the table in existence and trained for. Since then, the IDF has done just that with the Air Force and military intelligence, in particular preparing themselves for such an operation stepping up training exercises and focusing tremendous resources on intelligence collection. Billions of additional shekels have been poured into the defense budget specifically to prepare for strikes against Iran's nuclear facilities. And over the past year, Israeli officials have regularly repeated calls for what they describe as a credible military threat against Iran's nuclear program, in speeches, press conferences, media interviews, and private meetings with allies, arguing that it is necessary in order to gain leverage in the ongoing negotiations with the Islamic Republic over its nuclear program. By its own estimates, the IDF is still at least months away from being fully prepared to conduct such a strike, though officials say that a more limited version of its plans could be carried out sooner. But the focus of these discussions has generally been on the strike itself against Iran's nuclear facilities, an operation that would indeed be far, far more complicated and difficult than any other the IDF has conducted, 
including its raids to target Iraq's nuclear reactor in 1981 and Syria's in 2007. In each of those missions, Operation Opera and Operation Outside the Box, a single sortie containing a relatively small number of fighter jets conducted the bombing. But unlike in both of those cases, Iran does not have one nuclear facility that one group of planes could take out in a single strike, but many that are spread throughout the country, which would therefore require extraordinary levels of coordination to ensure that all of the sites were hit at the same time. Making this more difficult is the fact that many of the facilities are buried deep underground, making them all but impenetrable to attacks from the air, particularly the Fordo reactor, where Iran recently began enriching uranium to 20% levels of purity with advanced centrifuges in the latest breach of the 2015 nuclear deal. The United States does have the massive bunker-busting ordinances needed to strike such facilities, the 13,600-kilogram or 30,000-pound GBU-57 massive ordnance penetrator, but Washington has so far refused to provide them to Israel. In any case, what's more, selling the incredibly heavy bomb to Jerusalem would not do much good, as the Israeli Air Force does not have an aircraft capable of carrying it, and nor does it even have the airfield infrastructure needed to support the aircraft that could carry it. To circumvent these limitations and to demonstrate the seriousness of an Israeli threat of attack, some current and former officials in the U.S. have floated the idea of selling or leasing to Israel one of the three American heavy bombers capable of carrying the MOP, the B-52, B-1, or B-2. Doing so, however, faces a number of legal and logistical challenges as the B-52 and B-2 are most uh, are both effectively barred from sale under America's New START treaty with Russia, and the B-1 may also not be fully capable of containing the MOP within its bomb bays. Iran has also invested heavily in its air defenses, both purchasing advanced systems from Russia and developing its own domestically produced capabilities. But while the complexities of an Israeli operation should not be overstated, they are ultimately problems that can be resolved with enough time and resources. Though Israeli officials are willing to discuss the efforts to overcome these challenges and develop the capabilities needed to conduct such a strike, typically left unmentioned is what happens afterwards, which is of far greater significance. In 1981 and in 2007, there was effectively no immediate retaliation by Iraq and Syria, respectively, though Baghdad's response did come a decade later to a certain extent, with its Scud missile attacks on Israel during the first Gulf War. This is not expected to be the case with Iran, several Israeli defense officials have told the Times of Israel. For decades, Tehran has been building up a number of proxies throughout the region, the most formidable of which is Lebanon's Hezbollah, a terrorist group with an arsenal of rockets, missiles, and mortar shells that matches and even surpasses many Western states. These foreign proxies are meant to insulate Iran from attack by its enemies. To wit, Israel can't attack Iran if it is busy fighting off rocket fire in an invasion attempt by Hezbollah from Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia similarly couldn't attack Iran if it were facing the Houthis in Yemen. 
The Israeli military firmly believes that this network of proxies would be brought to bear against Israel if it conducts a strike on Iran's nuclear facilities. And Israeli projections for what a war against Hezbollah and allied militias in the region would look like are unnerving. Thousands of projectiles raining down on Israeli population centers, hundreds killed, severe damage to infrastructure and major utilities knocked out of service. This is not to say that Israel would never conduct a strike on Iran for fear of attack from its proxies, but that any decision to do so would have to be weighed not against the military's ability to carry out the operation, but against the potentially devastating prospects of what would follow the raid. The military option needs to be on the table. It is, of course, the last thing that we want to use, but we don't have the luxury of not preparing ourselves for the options. Defense Minister Benny Gantz said Thursday in an on-camera interview with the Ynet news site. Jerusalem's concern is that a nuclear-armed or even nuclear-threshold Iran would be able to act with even greater impunity in the region, arming its proxies and more deeply entrenching itself in Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and Iraq. But Israeli officials have been loath to set a specific condition under which it would conduct a strike. This is due in part to the fact that the considerations lie not only in Iran's capabilities, but in the balance between the threats facing Israel and Israel's ability to counter them. Asked if uranium enrichment to the level of 90% purity, generally regarded as weapons grade, would prompt an Israeli attack, Gantz refused to comment on Thursday. I don't like setting red lines that afterwards I'd have to come and explain myself if I didn't uphold them. We are tracking the Iranian process every day. There will be a point in time when the world, the region, and the state of Israel will have no choice but to act, he said. The Israel Defense Forces has been making strides to prepare itself for the multi-front war that is liable to follow a strike on Iran, holding a number of large-scale exercises simulating such a conflict in recent months and investigating roughly a billion shekels, or $350 million, toward training for the next year. The military is also working to improve its air defenses, particularly in northern Israel, in an effort to prevent the worst of the damage from rocket barrages and drone strikes in a future conflict. But the propensity of Israeli officials to discuss the technical aspects of an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities belies the true calculus at play in deciding whether to carry it out. It's not about the strike, but the war that followed. And next from the Jerusalem Post, Mossad recruited Iranian scientists to blow up nuclear facility. As many as 10 nuclear scientists agreed to help destroy centrifuges at the Natanz nuclear facility by Jerusalem Post staff. The Mossad was behind the destruction of one of Iran's most secure and important nuclear facilities, and they did this by discreetly recruiting a team of Iranian nuclear scientists, according to a new report by the Jewish Chronicle. According to the report, as many as 10 nuclear scientists agreed to help destroy the centrifuge hall at the Natanz nuclear facility in April. However, it seems they did not know they were doing this on behalf of Israel, but rather for other dissident groups. Ultimately, the Natanz explosion caused significant destruction at the Natanz nuclear plant. From the start, Iranian media and officials accused Israel of being behind the incident, 
something Israel has never commented on, despite originally referring to it as an incident and as an accident. Others further speculated that the U.S. was somehow involved. However, according to the Jewish Chronicle, the destruction of the Natanz centrifuges was conducted by the Mossad alone and had been in the works for years. According to the report, explosives were hidden as early as 2019. Further, an armed drone was smuggled into the Islamic Republic piece by piece in order to eventually launch missiles at another site in Karaj. Overall, the report claims three operations were planned in a period of just 18 months. This included the work of a thousand technicians, spies, and on-the-ground operatives. And next from the Jerusalem Post, 129 nations ignore Jewish ties to Temple Mount, call it solely Muslim, by Tova Lazarov. The United Nations General Assembly approved a resolution 129 to 11 on Wednesday that disavowed Jewish ties to the Temple Mount and called it solely by its Muslim name Al-Haram Al-Sharif. The text, referred to as the Jerusalem Resolution, is part of a push by the Palestinian Authority and the Arab states across the UN system to rebrand Judaism's most holy site as an exclusively Islamic one. The United States, which opposed the text, said that the omission of inclusive terminology for the site sacred to three faiths was of real and serious concern. Located in the heart of Jerusalem's old city, it is, it is where the ancient Jewish temple stood 2,000 years ago, and it is home to the Askamas compound, which is Islam's third holiest site. It is morally, historically, and politically wrong for members of this body to support language that denies both the Jewish and Christian connections to the Temple Mount and Al-Haram Al-Sharif, the U.S. envoy told the UNGA. The U.S. has not been the only country to voice concern over the lack of its inclusive language in an attempt to ensure support for the resolution. Its authors had made some small amendments since the General Assembly last approved the resolution in 2018 by 148 to 11. That text referenced Al-Haram Al-Sharif twice once in the action portion of the resolution and once in the introduction. This time, the phrase Al-Haram Al-Sharif was mentioned only once in the introduction. Despite this shift, support for the resolution dropped, with the number of countries that abstained more than doubling from 14 to 31. Three years ago, all the European countries supported the text. This year, a number of them changed their votes. Hungary and the Czech Republic opposed the resolution, while Austria, Bulgaria, Denmark, Germany, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia abstained. A British envoy said that the resolution adopted today refers to the holy sites in Jerusalem in purely Islamic terms without recognizing the Jewish terminology of the Temple Mount. The UK has made clear for many years that we disagree with this approach, and while we welcome the removal of the majority of these references, we are disappointed that we were unable to find a solution to the final reference, the envoy said. The UK has therefore moved our vote today from a yes to an abstention, 
if the unbalanced reference had been removed, the UK would have been ready and willing to vote yes. This should not be misunderstood as a reflection of a change in UK policy toward Jerusalem. Instead, it is an important signal of our commitment to recognizing the history of Jerusalem to the three monotheistic religions. The EU took a middle-of-the-road stance welcoming amendments the PA and the Arab groups made to reduce the annual number of some 20 resolutions on Israel, which they present to the UNGA for approval. The EU reiterates that whenever referring to the Temple Mount Aharam al-Sharif in the Jerusalem Resolution, both terms, i.e. Temple Mount and al-Haram al-Sharif, should be used, an EU representative said. The same is true for any text relating to Jerusalem, he explained. The EU calls on all sides not to deny the historical ties of other religions to the city of Jerusalem and its holy places, thus trying to delegitimize their history, the envoy said. In spite of his words, a fair number of EU member states approved the text, inc text including Belgium, France, Spain, and Italy. Palestinian ambassador to the UN, Riyad Mansour, thanked those who support the Jerusalem text, noting that it was an appropriate and needed resolution to give hope and support to our people. It pushed back at attempts to transform the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into a religious confrontation, Mansour said, adding that it relied on language on Jerusalem, which had already been approved in UN Security Council resolutions. He called on the UN to accept Palestine as a member state and to hold Israel accountable for its refusal to withdraw to the pre-1967 lines so that a two-state resolution to the conflict can be implemented. We will never accept to continue living under occupation in an apartheid system. We deserve freedom and dignity in our homeland, Mansour said. U.S. Uh, Israel's ambassador to the U.N., Gilad Erdan, accused the Palestinians of attempting to erase Jewish history. The hypocrisy of these resolutions is truly outrageous. A resolution about Jerusalem that does not refer to its ancient Jewish roots is not an ignorant mistake, but an attempt to distort and rewrite history. Erdogan ex exclaimed in a speech to the UNGA in advance of the vote. He described how central Jerusalem is to Jewish religious celebrations. At every Jewish wedding ceremony, the newly married couple stands under the wedding canopy and pledges to never forget their deep Jewish connection to Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its skill, Erdogan said. The vote took place on the fourth day of the Hanukkah festival in which Jews around the world celebrate the victory of the Maccabi warriors over the Greeks and their reclamation of the ancient Jewish temple in 164 BCE. It was one of three texts on Israel approved by the UNGA. The assembly voted 148 to 9 with 14 abstentions on another resolution called the Peaceful Settlement of the Question of Palestine, which demanded that Israel withdraw to the pre-1967 lines and that the international community refuse to render assistance to the settlement activity. It also called for an international peace conference in Moscow. The countries that opposed the text were Australia, Canada, Hungary, Israel, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Palau, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. 
This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.